All right, hey everyone, thank you for joining the Ask Interview series. I'm excited today to have a friend of mine, someone that I look up to, uh, and someone that I'm proud to say I've worked with before, Mr. T.A. McCann. He's the founder of a company called Rival IQ. In the past, he founded a company called Gist.com. He was a professional sailor and won the America's Cup in 1992 and 1995. He didn't win both times, but one of those times. And uh, he's also a mentor and advisor and investor in a lot of Seattle companies and uh, involved with Techstars a lot. So thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks, Shane. So we always start off the Ask Interview series by using one question to kind of like kick it off and lead it into the discussion and just hear stories from people um, you know, that have something that can be helpful to the people listening today. And what I wanted to go to you, you have such an interesting background. I wanted to take it back like back to maybe when you were uh, a lot younger than you are today, even though you're not old or anything, but just take it back a little bit. And the question that I wanted to ask you is, what past experiences do you think have contributed most to your success? Uh, and you can take that as far back as you want. And uh, I would love to just hear more of like the progression or timeline of your life and stories around things that you think contributed to things uh, later on that were successful. Yeah, great. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's uh... It's great to uh, be together, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll take it all the way back. I started my first company when I was like 11 years old. <laughs> so I, I remember printing my own business cards uh, saying T.A. McCann's grass cutting and yard work. And I like literally printed them on a hand printing press in my junior high school. Like I still have those, I still have those business cards. It was really pretty cool. Uh, but I started working as, you know, really, really quite young and the sense of driving my own direction and owning my own thing, um, was really empowering for me. I did that for a couple of years. Then who, I moved. Who pushed you to do that? I, I don't know that anybody pushed me to do that. I think I was primarily motivated by independence, uh, and both I'd say financial independence, like it was cool to have a little bit of pocket money that you went and earned on your own to go and spend however you wanted. So I think I was a little bit financially motivated. I think more than anything, I was motivated by just being in control of my own thing. Hmm. Uh, and from a really, you know, a really early age and whether I was doing my, my marketing, doing my cool little business cards or doing the work, um, I enjoyed both components of that, uh, at, you know, when I was super young. And then I moved into doing the same kind of thing where I was I was involved a lot, as you mentioned, as a sailor. I was involved with the you know boats, and so I started my own sort of boat washing and boat maintenance business, and I did that really through my teens. Uh, running how did, that. You, how did you get into sailing? My parents had a sailboat, and okay. you know we grew up on Lake Michigan outside Chicago, and I always hung you know from the time I was a little you know little kid, we hanging around sailboats, and uh, I didn't get into. Uh, sort of competitive sailing until I was sort of 13, 14. But uh, we, you know, I was always hanging around boats. Awesome. Is this something in like, do you go to college for that? Like, how do you get into competitive sailing? Well, I, I grew up, I knew how to sail, and my parents both were competitive sailors, albeit on a sort of a small club level. And uh, one of the boats that I worked on, like taking care of, these guys asked me, they said, hey, you, you know, we raced this boat and we'd love, you know, would you be interested in coming out and sailing on the boat? And my mom, I was like, no, I'm not interested. In fact, I got quite seasick when I was a kid. Uh, and so I was like, no, nah, not, not interested. But my mom really encouraged me. She said, you know, just go try it. Just go try it once. You know, what do you got to lose? You lose one Sunday. Who knows? You might like it. So I tried it. And, and uh, the 
in sailing, no matter what age you are or whether you're male or female or big or strong, like everyone kind of treats you sim- like in a similar way, like everyone's equal. And that really appealed to me. It's almost like in a startup, kind of like everybody's equal. Like it doesn't really matter what you've done in the past. doesn't matter what your rank is. doesn't matter this or that. It's like everyone's equal. We're all contributing to the same thing. And that really appealed to me at a, at a young age. And I felt empowered. I felt maybe older than I was. And, and, I, and I went back. And we kept getting better and better. And, um, you know, I, I went from one boat to the – which was kind of a, above average. And then the next summer, the guy, the guy who ran the best boat asked me to sail with him. And then we got to be kind of the big fish in the small pond of uh, kind of Lake Michigan, won a bunch of things there. And so it, it just kind of went from one to another to another until I got to be, you know, pr- pretty good, albeit in just the sort of the Great Lakes area. So can you take me from then? So it's like many, I think, athletic careers in general, especially mine. Uh, I was really good at baseball in high school. I gained my senior year. I got cut. I didn't make college baseball. The end of the sports is my, you know. Everything I knew in life is done at that day because I thought baseball was everything. And right. I think a lot of people in athletics, uh, you never get to the next step. Very few people, 1%, 2% of people actually go to a college and then, you know, the point oh 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 one get at, to do it for a career. Uh, and I didn't know a lot about the America's Cup uh, in general until I met you or mostly last year being in San Francisco. The America's Cup took over the city and I was like, holy shit, this thing is actually a big deal. And the amount of money and teams and uh, really how few people are actually involved with the actual teams. There's only a few teams and there's only 11 people on a boat. So right. how do you go from the big fish in Lake Michigan to actually ever winning an America's cup and being in, uh, like becoming a professional sailor? Like what is that? How does that progression happen? You, you got, I mean, I got lucky enough for two factors. One is that my parents always encouraged me to go ask, you know, for an opportunity to say, listen, I know I might not deserve this, but I'm going to ask and I'm going to come in at the lowest possible level and I'd like an opportunity to try out for this thing. So when I was like 13, I saw this video of the around the world race. So this is racing, you know, around the whole globe. And I said, man, that is cool. That is for me. I want to do that. Like I'm just a kid, right? I'm a kid sailing in the Midwest and I had no plan on how to do it, how to approach it or anything. But it sort of set in the back of my mind as I got to be a little bit better here or there. I went to college. I got out of college and I said, well, if I want to go try and achieve that goal, I better start figuring it out. So I literally wrote a letter to these guys that I'd met sort of three, four years earlier. And I said, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but, um, you know, we met back here. Uh, I just graduated college on a swimming scholarship. I'm big. I'm fit. And I want to go and do this around the world race. Could you help me? Could you tell me what I need to know, what I need to learn, who I should, you know, who I should get in touch with? Because it might be, it's, you know, it was three, it was three or four, three years in advance of the next race upcoming. So and they, this was, this was in uh, 2000, sorry, 1990. Okay. So 1990, I graduated college, 1989. No, uh, no eight, email. No email. So I write a letter and to these guys named Gary Jobson and Buddy Melgis. And I said, I would like to go do this thing and achieve it. Could you just tell me what I need to learn? How do I need to get myself on that path to achieve this thing that I wanted to do since I was a little kid? And they wrote me back and said, yeah, sure, we remember you and we'd be happy to answer those questions for you. But in the meantime, we're putting together this America's Cup team. Would you be interested in trying out? I said, OK. So I tried out. I went to the tryout and they said, yeah, not quite good enough. So they sent me home. Um, but they said, you know, we're going to look at some other guys. And then they invited me back. And I was literally like the last guy chosen on the team. 
And then we went on to win the America's Cup with that 1992 team. And it's like being there at the IPO. It's like you may have had a very small contribution to it, but you did. You were on the team and you made it happen. And, you know, then you get you get the watch, so to speak, in sailing. So that's it was really about the persistence of I had a dream and I wanted to go after that, knowing it might take me many, many steps to get there. Leveraging my mom or my dad saying, you know what, just go try. What do you what do you got to lose? Nothing. And those two things worked out to, to take me from, you know, the big fish in the small pond to a really, really small fish in the biggest pond. Hmm. Uh, and it took me a while to, uh, you know, to, to make that step. So you, you mentioned you went to college and you, you had a degree in mechanical was, engineering. So when you got out of college, did you have any, you, you didn't have pressure from parents to say, go use your degree? Well, I had a job. I mean, I got a college, I got a regular job. I mean, a good job, entrepreneurial job. I was like an individual sales guy working for a robotics company in the Midwest. Hmm. I was running my own territory. I was straight out of college. It was still entrepreneurial, albeit I was working for a slightly larger company. But it's almost like if you're in a company now and you think you want to do a startup at some point, you start working on Tuesday nights. You start building your entrepreneurial skill. You start doing your side job. And you and I both talk a lot about doing a side project. And, and sailing at that point was a side project. I didn't know if it would materialize. I didn't know if I could find the right path to go and achieve it. So I had my day job. Got it. And I was doing that. I was learning from it. But I, I started my side project, which was, in this case, trying to do the Around the World race. And do, the moment you got the, the, the real call, like, hey, you want to be on this team, is that like years of your life? You just practice. It's full time now. You get paid. What, what does it even work? How yeah, does that even work? Exactly. That's it. Yep. You quit and you become a full time sailor. And in the America's Cup, I mean, it's a six or seven days a week. I mean, it's a startup. Six or seven days a week for somewhere between two and three years. Uh, and it is hardcore six o'clock in the morning until, you know, six, seven, eight o'clock at night. And you're like dead tired every day. I mean, sometimes you're working 20, six, 27 days out of the month, like just no time off. I mean, you're just busting it hard because just like, just like a funding round, you could think, listen, we own like the America's cup is going to happen on this day. The race is going to start on this day. And we've got, you know, only so many hours to do the best we possibly can to build the fastest boat, the best team, whatever. And so that's, that's what you do full time. Yeah. You get paid and they to look after your expenses and, just like Google or wherever they buy your lunch and, you know, like it's all taken care of so that you can focus all of your effort on trying to be the best that you can. What happened in 1995? Uh, so I did the 92 cup. Then I did the around the world race, 93, 94. Um, and then in 95, I joined Dennis Connor, who is probably the most well-known uh, Amer America's cup sailor and probably one of the most well, most well-known sailors, you know, out there. And we were underfunded. I mean, simple as that. In sailing, um, money translates to technology, technology translates to boat speed. And if we create a fast enough boat, anybody can sail it. And so there's all this groundwork that's laid. And, it, and the more money you have, the more engineers you can hire, the more tests you can do, the more prototypes you can build. And the more of those you build, you increase your chances of success. And in the case of 1992, we probably spent as much or if not double of everybody else super fast. In 1995, we spent half of what the, the Kiwis spent, the New Zealand team, and we were slow. And so we did the best we could with what we had, but technology was slow and the boat was slow. And no matter how well you sailed it, you just couldn't compete. Hmm. And we lost. <laughs> how bad? Well, the America's Cup is always a head-to-head -head race, so it's called a match race. So you, you go through process of elimination to get to the final match. So, I mean, we lost handily. 
the Kiwis beat us handily in the finals of the America's Cup in 95. And that was the first time that, that was the second time that America had lost it. Uh, but, um, you know, it's pretty, pretty rare. And now it's taken all the way back to Larry Ellison and his team of Oracle to bring it back to the United States. <laughs> That's crazy. So, okay, so you're done. 1995, done with the America's Cup? No more professional yeah. sailing? No, I, I was hired after the 95 America's Cup by Larry Ellison. There were four or five of us from the from the Stars and Stripes team, which was well regarded as one of the best teams, albeit on a slightly slower boat. And Larry said he wanted to go sailboat racing. So he hired us and, and we basically built a boat for him and built a program for him and built the guys and hired the team. And we went on to win five world championships with Larry. And, you know, we were sitting around after winning, I think, the fifth of those world championships. And he said, OK, well, like, is this it? Is this the end? And he said, well, if you really want to go big, Larry, you got to go for the America's <laughs> And he said, well, what would that entail? And this was sort of, this was a, sort of like 98, 99 kind of time frame. Um, and he said, great. Like we talked about a budget. We talked about a team. We talked about an approach. And he put that team together and, you know, it took him, I think, eight or nine years to actually go and win the America's Cup and probably three, four hundred million dollars to go do it. But that's, uh, that's how. And at that time, he was going to step up to the next level. I was sort of fading out of sailing. And so you're looking at like 1995. It sounds like you were there for a few years after that, right? You have a mechanical engineering degree. How did you turn and end up getting into technology at all? Well, we were sitting around. I was sailing on another professional team in, in 95, and it was in Europe. And, I, and the owner of the team said, what's going on with this whole Internet thing? And it was when Bill Gates was on the cover of Newsweek. It was when Netscape was just starting to happen. I mean, the Internet was starting to happen. And... So I basically said to the team owner, I said, you know, I'm kind of interested in this too. Why don't you just pay me like 20 bucks an hour over the winter and I'll go build us a website. You know, maybe it'll be good for promotion or for sponsorship or something. And I'm interested in figuring it out. What did you use to build the first website? PageMill. All right. PageMill? PageMill. It's awesome. And yeah. we built like the first, we, we built the first database on Access. Nice. Like Microsoft Access as the database, and we were using Active Server Pages, which is really cool. Like this is sort of like circa nineteen ninety six, ninety seven. Um, <laughs> but we built this website, and it was you know it was terrible, but pretty good. And people saw it, and they're like, "Wow, we want one of those." And so we, myself and my brother, who was my co founder, we basically built a side business while I was sailing full time. Now, at a side business, is building websites. And then pretty soon the website business became the full-time business and the sailing became the side business. And then by the late 90s, I'd sort of faded out of sailing and was spending all my time on technology and building technology companies. Technology in the sense of you were building websites or other people like an agency or a consulting type gig. Yeah, exactly. With your exactly. brother. Yeah, that's right. And then from there, you went on to actually start a product-oriented software company, correct? Yeah, that's right. What was that? So the name of the company was called HelpShare, and it was, a, it was an online marketplace for questions and answers. A little bit like Jelly, a little bit <laughs> like Quora, uh, circa 1998. So 15 uh, to 20 years before. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and the, the premise was just a community. You could uh, ask a question and then get answers, just like Yahoo Answers as well? Yeah, we were before Yahoo Answers, before Google Answers, all of that. So, so it was. Is this before Google? No, not before Google. Google started in '96. Okay, because I but, remember there was a story I heard from uh, one of the founders or the CEO of eBay, and 
she was talking about, you know, eBay was before people were searching, like they would go to eBay directly. And yeah. so how were people finding HelpShare? Well, they, they initially were finding it because we had done a reasonable job of content marketing. I mean, every question that was, went through the site was basically being indexed by Google. So if you right. went to Google or, or Alta Vista at the time, or like those, ask whatever, Jeeves, all, like, you would basically do a search and then you'd find, oh, here's actually a question and answer. I mean, it's, it's identical in that sense to the way Quora is working today. I mean, Quora has lots of really good natural traffic because they've indexed all the content. And so we had that similar sort of model. And so people were finding it. That's, that was one way. Two is we, we built the system initially to be a white label system. So we built it so you could plug it into homedepot.com or gardening.com or lawyers.com because those communities already existed. They just weren't enabled to ask and answer each other's questions. So we architected the product and our, our distribution strategy or, or acquisition strategy was really thinking about let's take it to where the people already are. And let's enable questions and answers in those communities. Is this very much like forums of today? And yeah, was, well, or forums were actually a predecessor. I mean, forums existed, but the challenges with forums were twofold. One is there was no way to provide rankings and rewards. There was no way to understand credibility. So you ask a question, one guy says, make it white. The other guy says, make it black. You don't know what to do because there's no way to figure out, like, is one guy smarter or, or dumber than the other guy? So we added ratings and rewards to the basic model of threaded questions or forums. It's interesting because you, you see things 15 years later, like Jelly, which they also don't have ratings or rewards and it's just random answers. And I'm kind of like, you know, is this, it needs a little you know verification layer on top of who this person right. actually is. But hold on, so go back a second because you started this product focused company. I understand how you make money when you're in a consulting company building websites for other people, but how are you actually paying for this? Like, so we, that was my first. That was my first angel-funded company. Oh, okay. Um, our primary revenue model was uh, we were licensing that application or that platform to other online communities. So if you were gardening.com, you would pay us a fee to license that that particular product. And you had, you had gardening.com. Uh, we had a lawyer site. We had a small business site. We had an IT site. Uh, one, two, three, four, like three or four verticals sites that we had sort of licensed it, uh, licensed it into, at which point we said, great, now we've got like real revenue. We have real customers. We've got flow of questions and answers. Let's go raise a series, a, you know, a real venture round in February of 2000. I was like the month before the dot-com crash. And, and so then we were host. How, how much angel money did you raise? Uh, like 350,000. And friends, families, investors who... Yeah, friends and family, pretty much all. I mean, I had no idea what I was really doing. There was a, a couple of angels in the Seattle market that participated. But generally speaking, I had no idea what it meant to raise money, to raise money in a strategic way or anything like that. And it was just you and your brother? Yeah, they were the two founders, yep. And so did you hire like engineering team or did you code it yourselves? Like how was that? What did that look yeah, like? Yeah, Rob did, my brother Rob did all the original coding, hmm. but then we ended up building the team up to uh, about 13 or 14 people. So about oh, wow. three quarters, you know, half, to, half engineers, half marketing, customer support, a couple of account manager -y kind of people, one sales guy. I mean, we were building a real company when, you know, we basically ran out of money and had shut the company down. What you know, was that like? Scale. Remember, like it was yesterday. What, was the, what was the worst part about it? 
I think the I think the worst part is that you all believe in a dream and a, a thing that should exist in the world, and one might argue that it should exist in the world because people are still trying to create it, whether it's Jelly or Yahoo yeah. Answers or Google Answers or uh, or Cora. So we believe that that thing should exist in the world, and that we weren't going to be able to go and do it. We had to stop working on pursuing that thing that we think needs to be in the world. Um, you know, everybody could go find regular jobs, and that that all worked out fine. You could go get solve that. But we also really enjoyed working on the problem together. The team was really solid. We were having a lot of fun together building the thing and working really hard at it. But it's sad when you have to sort of break up a team that you've you've worked hard to put together. If so, I have a question on this. If you like working and believe so much and we're doing it on the side and you were all in, how did you know to quit and not keep doing it on the side? Well, um, I sat, I remember sitting with the team when we, we sort of got the final no from whatever, you know, 27 venture capital firms we were talking to. Um, and I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know who else we're going to talk to. And we're like, we're now well into the dot-com crash. And I remember just saying, like, I would love for you guys to keep working on it with me, but I can't pay you anymore. All the money's gone. So I understand if you want to go and get a job, totally fine. You should go do that. Um, some of us stayed on for much longer. So my brother and I were the first in and we were the last out. And we worked on it for another good sort of almost six months, probably past when everyone else is gone, you know, still trying to make something of it. Um, and at a certain point, like your wife or your girlfriend or your friends say, dude, like you need to get a job. Like it's over. And I think many entrepreneurs, myself included, certainly at the early stages, they'll keep going because we're persistent people. We believe in the vision and we, we think, you know what, some way it's going to work out. Hmm. In many cases, too long. Yeah. And in that case, I mean, there's lots of examples of where it did work, but there's way more examples of people who worked on it far too long and should have just been able to say, kill it. So did and, you go get a job? Yeah. I ended up, ended up the, working at Microsoft. So I didn't think that I would end up at Microsoft. I knew little about them, but I thought what I wanted to work on is sort of a company that might be the next stage along. So I was looking at companies that are like 50 or 100 people, kind of Series A, Series B funded companies. And a friend of mine said, hey, you should go just talk to the guys at Microsoft. And I'm like, why would I want to work there? And literally, I just wandered around. You know, I'd meet one person and they'd say, well, tell me what your perfect job is. And I would describe what I thought I wanted to do. And they'd say, well, we don't have that, but you should go talk to this other group. And this one and this one and this one. And what was the job? I said I wanted to work as the, the intersection of product development, business development, and sales. I like building product and I wanted to be close to building a product. I like business development because it's more strategic. It's like aligning different interests and it's about a distribution and I like sales because I like closing it, I like actually having something that says meaningful value where someone will give you money for it. And I describe, continue to describe it that way and ultimately ended up working on the exchange team, uh, working on kind of email, corporate email. And the, is it, when was it Exchange, is it new product? Is it around that time or has it been around for a while? No, when I joined, when I joined Exchange, it was $640 million a year in revenue. So it was already a big product. I think Exchange, the first version of Exchange were around 1995. So now we're kind of, you know, six, seven years into it. It was, it was arguably, you know, they were sort of beating out Lotus Notes, which I don't know if maybe doesn't exist anymore. Gmail had just really been, you know, invented on the consumer side and hadn't really sort of moved into a business side yet at all. Um, and so it, by the time I left, it was over a billion dollar business. So f three years later, it was a billion dollar business at Microsoft. And so take me where you're at now, 2007, six? 
2004, I left Microsoft and um, I'd started a bunch of entrepreneurial things in and around exchange. And I started a program that would work with venture capitalists to say, hey, I need you guys to go build a bunch of products and companies that fill in the voids around exchange. And one of those relationships led to the uh, Polaris guys asking me to become an entrepreneur in residence. They're like, hey, that was fun developing ideas with you. You should come over here and develop your own ideas. So two things for people listening, because I don't know if everyone understands. What, so what is Polaris and then what is an entrepreneur in residence? Polaris is a venture capital firm. In Seattle? Um, based, in, based in Boston. And at the time they had an office in Seattle. Um, and an entrepreneur in residence is usually somebody who has some level of entrepreneurial success, or in my case, failure, um, that they hire and give a small stipend to with an expectation that they'll develop companies and the venture capital firm will get a first look at that company with no obligation to fund it, but their opportunity to watch it develop before everybody else gets to look at it. And the entrepreneur's opportunity is that they're working with a venture capital firm already so that they have a higher likelihood of that idea being funded. And, and you get a salary. You're, you're an employee yes. of a venture capital firm. Small, small, small salary, you know, enough to make your house payment, buy beer and pizza. Yeah, yeah. But so that is that, that seems like the dream for uh, if, if I'd never done a notch, like a startup before or uh, like, how do you get that gig? Well, you, you get that gig. Generally, entrepreneur residents are people who've already been successful at starting a company. Got it. And I was the odd one that, you know, my company had been a failure, but most of them are successful. But most entrepreneurs, I mean, the dream is to start and run good companies, not to hang around and think about starting companies. So it's really just a sort of a place of um, a, an opportunity to study, to focus hmm. so that, you know, they're like, you're not doing your day job. You have enough time to work on new ideas. Personally, I find it um, I don't like that model. I would much rather have something I'm working on with a significant amount of my focus and have a side project. So my, for me at least, being in, a, in a, a room by myself with just myself and a whiteboard is not as good for developing ideas as it is being out kind of in the community because it never, I never know how long it's going to take to develop an idea. And you can't force it sometimes. Sometimes you have to wait for the yeah. market. Sometimes you have to wait for the team. Um, and like you can't just say like, great, here's three months. Like go find your next idea. At least that doesn't work as well for me. So how did you – so now you're an entrepreneur in residence – what did you build inside of there and like what happened, like what happened next or uh, did any ideas spin out and then you went and ran with them or like? Yeah, I got a few, I had a few ideas that I liked a lot uh, that Polaris didn't like. Um, I had a few ideas. What were they? Uh, one of them was all around active traffic management. So predictive traffic management, kind of like Waze, <laughs> kind of like Inrix, both companies that will be billion dollar companies. So I was working on those in 2004, 2005. Um, and couldn't get it funded. Uh, at least Polaris did, wouldn't, wouldn't fund that particular idea. Um, there were a couple of other music-related things that I worked on. Do you think uh, that that would have worked on the web and not with the platforms of mobile of today? Um, do you think like the idea of Waze could have worked as a web-focused company back when you started it? Uh, or do yes. you think it needed the no. infrastructure to make it work? It's, it's better. It's augmented with mobile and it's augmented with smart mobile phones as opposed to dumb. But I mean, we had Blackberries at the time, right? We had Windows mobile phones. They weren't as good as an iPhone or Android today. But I mean, we had smartphones in 2005. Um, sure. And so, you know, they, they're, they're always better every year. But we had plenty of infrastructure for that uh, to work. 
um, properly. And Inrix, you know, a Seattle-based company here, is is working a lot of the similar concepts. Waze was similar. Not it was my idea wasn't identical, but certainly in the same kind of idea of let's use a lot of data probes that are out there to do predictive traffic analysis and send me an alert that says, "Hey, did you remember there's a Seahawks game today? So you better leave early if you need to get home at six. You would, you would see a lot of lights in the Google Maps, red, yellow, green, and the Google Now, probably. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, this is two thousand. This is two thousand five. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's almost nine years ago. So that was one of the ideas, and we just didn't end up, and and none of the ideas ended up resonating with both of us. And so I ended up leaving Polaris and and joining up with uh, Vulcan Capital, which is Paul Allen's venture firm. And so they hired me sort of as an entrepreneur in residence, but also to just help them productize ideas. So Paul had a lot of ideas, and Steve Hall, who runs Vulcan Capital, had a lot of ideas, but they didn't have any entrepreneurs to go turn them into companies. So they effectively hired me to do that. Um, and one of those ideas that I worked on ultimately became GIST. And so was it your idea or their ideas? Or like, how did, it, how did ideation happen inside of Vulcan? And um, ultimately, like, when do you make the decision, like, okay, I'm going to do this as a company. Like at what point have you spent enough time to figure it out? Yeah. So, so the early parts of my Vulcan time, um, were primarily helping them organize a bunch of ideas they had on their own. Like, you know, back of the, back of the envelope. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And I would do a little bit of who's the customer? What's the value proposition? What's the feature set? What's the business model? What's the competitive landscape? I got pretty good at that process. And I could, you know, on a week or two weeks basis, I could churn a couple of ideas for them. And I'd say, you know, on a scale of one to 10, this is a four. And on a scale of one, this is an eight. Hey, if we were going to pursue this, then we do this, that or the other thing. And I, I started hiring and managing small prototyping teams for the ideas that we thought were good. And the, the idea for GIST really came from, I think, primarily Steve Hall, who said, you know, or Paul, which said, what if I could have kind of an automatic you know, news feed or quote unquote newspaper that told me everything I wanted to know. Like, how would you do that? And so we started thinking, well, you'd have to mine a bunch of data from the user originally hmm. and to get kind of a profile as it were. And then you'd have to go and hit a bunch of data sources to bring back the relevant information. And I did a bunch of kind of prototyping. Well, if you want to know travel information, go to travel history. If you want to know sports information, you know this. And I said, well, what if you wanted to know news about people and companies? Oh, that's the inbox. And so I brought the inbox, my exchange background to, we could do, we could develop an automated news service that gave you relevant information about your contacts by monet, by, by mining all of your inbox hmm. and algorithmically prioritizing who you cared about and then going into a bunch of news sources and bringing that back. So the idea that ultimately became gist was, I'd say, you know, originated by Paul and Steve and then enhanced with a bunch of my own, kind of background and, and perspective. And so what did you do different when you decided to start GIST versus when you decided to start HelpShare? Uh, I had a lot more, I had time. Um, and I had certainly a lot more experience. I knew what it took. I had, you know, gone and seen what like real software looked like. I mean, you go to work at Microsoft and you look at a global business and you look at a billion dollar business as opposed to a $10,000 business. I know what, you know, like, product management was and program management and engineering and test and all the functional things like I'd added all of that set of skill that I didn't have when we did when we did help share. Um, and so I had, I think, much better perspective. I had Paul and Steve sort of pushing us on 
let's not build something small. Let's go build something big that lots and lots of people, I mean, like tens or hundreds of millions of people are going to want to use. So that was all different and additive. And through my time at Microsoft and Polaris, I looked at and, and was on, introduced to lots of other entrepreneurs who were building really big companies. Um, and so I started to have a perspective that was much larger than I had, you know, 10 years previous. Okay. So who was the first person you called when you decided to do just as a company? Uh, well, it was, in this case, it was a little bit more iterative because we were slowly, like the idea was coming together and I'd hired a small development team. Um, Adam Loving was on that team. So Adam was at GIST with us for a while and he'd been working with me and lots and lots of other companies. And so he's one of my kind of bro- go-to prototype guys. And, and GIST was not really, I hadn't convinced myself there was a company there until we built the prototype. When we built the prototype, connect to Gmail, parse, parse all the message headers, give me a list of people and companies of, that I interact with frequently, and then go hit the Google News API and bring me back a feed of data. And when, that, when we hooked those two things up and we're like, whoa, this is cool, like this is valuable. But we weren't sure until he actually did a prototype. And Adam and this other guy named Toby Padilla were working on that prototype. And once they got that working, that was like a big you know, step toward this could be a company. And then I had to make the mental choice to go to Paul and Steve and say, I want to go run this company as opposed to we should create this company you know, or we should hire some guys to go to this. So I made a mental jump of I want to go do this. I want to go run this company and take these guys with, us, with me to do it. Okay, so take me. This is this is this is a this is an amazing like progression through your life, and I'm it's love. I'm loving this story. So, go to gist for a few years, and get to like the end of gist. You've uh, built a product. Just ultimately got acquired by BlackBerry. Um, I think there were other acquisition offers that happened, didn't go through. Who knows what was going to happen? And like, do you feel at the end of gist? Like that you wish, are you happy with what uh, ended up with just? Absolutely. And, and, I'm sad. and I'm sad too. Okay. Why? I'm, I'm happy because it was my first successful entrepreneurial venture. You know, you start an idea, you grow a team, you raise venture capital money, you sell the company, people make money, everyone's happy. Like that's a, that is a, I think, an unmitigated success in the entrepreneurial world, venture capital funded sort of startup world. Yeah. Could it have been bigger? Sure. But everybody made money, nice return for their investors as an entrepreneur. It was good for me for the team as you were one of them. It was good for the team. So check good success. Cool. Two is we did something important. Like we actually built something that was meaningful and useful. And, um, in fact, we took much of that and put it into Blackberry BlackBerry 10 contact manager is largely gist and put that into a mobile context and uh, put that out into the world, which was part of the premise of why should we sell the company now was we can put this in tens of millions of people's hands much more quickly in inside BlackBerry versus what we could have done on our own. Um, so I think, you know, that, that was a significant success. The failure is that, like we didn't really get to realize the vision. Like I wanted to basically create the world's largest connected social graph because the way it just worked was to bring all my contacts together, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and my inbox, bring them all together and understand who I know, how well I know them, and how that's changing over time. And we didn't get to do that. 
So in that way, it's it's frustrating or it's sad or it's a failure. I mean, just today, Relate IQ raised forty million dollars to basically go and do that. I or saw for, that, and I saw people tweeting about it say a few days ago, saying that they really liked the idea. I signed up actually yesterday. <laughs> I got an email from their customer um, support. And he's like, can I help you get it set up? And I tried to use the Google OAuth. It didn't even work. And I was like, I was like, it's just all the same, you know, the, the same uh, problems and hardships with building software. But when I saw that funding round today, I was like, no one still solved this even close. Right. Um, so it's, it's exciting that we, that we made some steps forward on that. Now just is all gone. It's evaporated into the ether. And yet there'll be more and more people that continue to try because the, the emotion still sits there. We all care about building relationships with people yeah. and you build relationships with content, with context by understanding that you did something or I did something and using that to say, hey, congratulations on doing whatever or contextualizing our relationship and products like Gist or Refresh or Relate IQ or Full Contact are all approaches to support an underlying human emotion of building strong relationships. Man, I, can I ask you how you... How do you take your expertise whenever I think you work on something so long I and mean, you've thought about it for years and you see all these new companies in the last two or three years coming up, uh, you know, monthly pretty much that are contact book solutions. And how, how are you taking your knowledge or experience in the space, which is greater than probably many or are you and trying to help other companies like do uh things that didn't work for or don't do things that didn't work for gist or do things that we thought worked really well or like are you investing on the board of do you spend time doing workshops like i feel like the amount of companies being created in the space versus the amount of knowledge that you probably have or learnings from what you've been thinking about for the last seven eight nine years um do you do anything in that realm yeah so so brad feld from foundry group was an investor in gist and he's also an investor in a company called full contact and so I've joined the board of Full Contact, and they're working at the problem in a little bit different way, but certainly in that broad sort of umbrella, similar kind of approach. So now I'm on the board of Full Contact. Um, products like Refresh, which I think are awesome, like I've volunteered my time, and hopefully they'll take me up on that. I mean, any of these guys who are working on it, I'm willing to spend time on it because I want the solution to exist, both yeah. for myself in a selfish way, but also in the world. Like I want something like Gist to exist, and... Uh, and yet it doesn't. So I'm willing to put my time into trying to help these guys in addition to just they're the next set of entrepreneurs and I'm always willing to spend my time helping other entrepreneurs. So the, the company that you're involved with is fullcontact.com? Correct. And then the app is Refresh app, correct? Yeah, I'm not involved with Refresh in any way, but I think that, that from what I've seen in the spirit of using content to build a relationship, I think that Refresh has done the best job on the mobile phone. Yeah. You know, before you walk into a meeting, it's like, there's my contact of Shane and here's where he is. And he's a Cubs fan and he used to do this. And this is when you last talked to him and this is where he lives. And these are your friends in common. And the, the context this. they give you is insane. I mean, it's one of the best, the way, the way they tell the story too. They're like, Hey, you should talk about this tweet. Cause it was the most favorited and all that. Exactly. Uh, and it's funny thinking about just, uh, the, the one piece of the app that was just the, the best part was when it was, uh, the meeting in 10 minutes and you can say, I'm running late. And then it'd have that little feature. It's in a text and, it was like right. you're seeing like they they kind of like pulled just that piece of the app and built an entirely like diff, like a full solution around just that singular use case, which is interesting. Yeah, so they're actually getting a lot of their data from Full Contact. Awesome, Full Contact. So they're, they're a Full Contact customer, which is fine, but augmented it into the mobile context and made it slightly more meeting centric, 
which is which is great. I mean, totally awesome. And there's lots of guys trying it from different directions, and I'm willing to spend my time trying to help them to be successful. Okay, so go a little further now, and uh, you were the CEO of Gist, and you raised it was pretty much raising money was all on your shoulders, correct? Yep. And then I'm just curious now. Your new company is Rival IQ, which is more in the B2B space. Uh, marketing tools of competitive research on all of your competitors. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know if you have a better pitch, but I, I mean, I, I, I like it and I use it. I'm curious from a personal level, uh, you talked a lot about like building the initial team and stuff. How did you decide to go build a company with the uh, three other co-founders you have there? And how did you decide to not be the CEO after being the CEO of your last company? Yeah. So, um, so Rival IQ is, is marketing and competitive intelligence uh, focused at active online marketers. Um, I had this problem at GIST. Whenever I wanted to make a significant decision like pricing or a blog redesign or a page redesign or a feature, I would always go and look at my competitors. Duh. I'd also go look at what I would call aspirational companies, companies that had done it really well one way or another, and you wanted to basically screen cap all of their effort and try to compare your own. So. We, I actually had the ideas for GIST or for Rival IQ a long time ago, kind of 2008-2009. Seeing a theme here that takes me a long time to develop an idea. Uh, or that you're I, 10 years early. And so if I just had a list of all the things you thought about 10 years ago, I would just go start them all right now. That's what I think <laughs> you should post. Here's my ideas from 2004. Um, it's <laughs> the perfect time. And then we'll give it to everyone who watches this interview. Maybe so. Uh, so, I, I mean... I fundamentally believe, I mean, to build a good company, it's so much more about the people and the idea has to resonate equally with everybody on the team, the founding team specifically. And so I met John Clark. Uh, we were both mentors for Techstars and, and we just enjoyed spending time together. And he said to me like, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to work on something with you. And I was you know, working my full-time job at BlackBerry and I said, great, like what ideas do you have? And I said, it's much more fun to like work on a thing. And so we kicked around a bunch of different ideas and this, this idea for compa- comparison really, less on competitive intelligence, but more on comparison and learning by comparing myself to others kind of popped into my head and I sort of kicked that one out to me and said, hey, that seems good. And we just kind of kept working on that. Like we would get together like every Wednesday for an hour or two and we just kind of try to make a little bit of progress. Meanwhile, building a relationship with each other and, uh, and working the idea. And so in this case, I mean, it was very clear early on. I mean, I had a day job at BlackBerry. There wasn't an opportunity for me to be a CEO in this particular case. So I was playing sort of co-founder, mentor, and individual contributor. And for me, it's really quite exciting to be able to do both of those things or three of those things. And some days I do play kind of mentor. I play board member and I help John because I'm a CEO. I know how that feels and I can provide him a lot of, like, a lot of guidance and or just another sounding board to react to. And then other days I enjoy the fact that I'm not the CEO, right? It's his decisions to make and I'm just going to go be the VP of marketing or I'm going to go be a product guy. And, and I think I learn different things in each one of those contexts. And it's really fun in a company like this to, to be able to bounce back and forth between those roles, learning and honing my skills in different ways for both. Hmm. So I want to, I want to end this up. We're coming up in about 45 minutes, which is a uh, between 30 and 45 is good. And I want to walk back to one last question, which is starting this new company. What do you think you're thinking about differently after doing help share, which ultimately failed after gist, which was a success or even 
thinking back to the sailing days, is there something, the way you're approaching this company, the team, the way you uh, think about uh, kind of hiring or the work style, do you have an office? And, uh, and in 2014, are you thinking about it differently or what are you thinking about differently from the past things that you've learned from the other companies? I, I would say that I'm drawing from my experience sailing in that it's so much about the team and the team dynamic and really believing kind of in my heart in the rest of the crew, rest of the guys. And I spent a lot more time in the early parts of Rival IQ wanting to feel that, wanting to feel a connection, a brotherhood, as it were, with my co-founders. And that takes time. It takes grunting it out. It takes arguing. It takes making up. It takes disagreeing uh, in order to get to that, to get to a level of understanding and a level of trust. And so I think I'm, I used to probably place more effort on idea. Um, and while my teams have always been good, in my opinion, like I've, I'm erring more and more toward the fit of the team, the feel of the team, the skills and complementary nature of the team. And how we're going to make decisions as much as the, what the decisions are. Hmm. That's interesting. So in, in a sailing context too, do you think at all, because on a sailing, uh, on a sailboat, it, like the environment is very clear. You're on a boat, you have a very clear destination and that's how you win. Do you think at all about the environment of how you work uh, to create, the, like to create that atmosphere for the team? Do you, is that anything at all? Like, do you think of the, in that kind of thing? Well, I, I think about, I would say less about the physical environment, but I would say much more about the cultural environment. So it's how do we interact? I mean, we, I'm a mechanical engineer and I draw a lot on the, what is the process of building a company as much as whatever the company is? How long is the sprint? Who does what? What happens on Wednesday? What happens on Friday? What happens when we miss a feature? What happens when we make a feature, et cetera? And so we, were, we focused a lot of that at GIST, as you recall. And we focus a lot on Rival IQ, the process of which we're building the company. And that's everything from the engineering schedule to the how are we going to hire people and how are we going to do that differently, do it better than other companies, which I think ends up, if you take the sailing analogy, it ends up being able to get more boat speed out of the same dollar, hmm. more technology out of the same dollar, more productivity out of the same amount of people, which ultimately I think creates an advantage. So we're focused a lot on who the people are, but also what is the process and how do we keep iterating on the process as much as we're iterating on the product. Awesome. Well, I would like to thank you for that interview. That was an amazing story from going back to, from being a kid selling uh, or mowing lawns. It's funny, you, you were personal branding back then. You named it T.A. McCann Lawn Care. Uh, if you ever have the business card, just send it in and I'll, I'll uh, snip it in the end of this, this interview. But I just want to thank you for coming today, everyone. T.A. McCann, how can they reach out to you or say hello? Yeah, I'm at T.A. McCann, M-C-C-A-N-N uh, on Twitter. And my blog is T.A. McCann.com. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Shane.